Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 255. We are literally closing in the last days of the second order of this leap year and about to enter the month of Nisan, which will be next Shabbos, which is Nisan, Chedesh the month of our redemption. So we will talk about the timely period in which we are in now, its relevance to our lives, its application to our personal day-to-day experiences. This program I'm pleased to dedicate to my dear brother. Happy birthday on his 56th birthday, Baruch Shalom Jacobson. May have a together with his family and much nachas, children and grandchildren together with his wife Leah and all extended family. Um, since we're making announcements, those of you familiar with this program know that there's a rich store of archives of all previous programs that you can access at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You can also submit any question you like completely anonymously, confidentially, at the forum at the same place, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, as well as accessing the essays of the previous four years essay contest, my Life is a Supplied Essay Contest. And with that, we're about to close and finish the evaluation and the judging of this year's essays. Stay tuned for announcements about that as well. And finally, we survive on your support. Please consider dedicating a program, a series of programs in honor or memory of a loved one. Go to, to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship where you can easily do that as well. So with that, let us go and let's begin perhaps with the most timely thing, and that is that tonight is Chofei Adr, Chofei Adr Beis, which of course is the birthday, the 118th birthday of the Rebbe Tzinchayim Mushke, the Pla Gufa, the partner of the Rebbe, um, who was born on Chofei Adr, Tofresh Samachalaf, and this year will be the 118th birthday. So let's begin with that, and... We don't have to look far to take out a directive and a personal application. The Rebbe himself provided to us the year of her passing, which was almost a month, a little more than a month before her birthday. The Rebbe instituted on the Miftzah called Yem Heledes. So in honor of his wife, of the honor of the Rebbe, what more beautiful way to honor it by, even though the Rebbe had already spoken about people designating and celebrating their birthday, in Ayyem Yem of Yud Aleph Nisan, the Rebbe's own birthday, talks about a birthday and how one should honor it. But then it came a full-blown effort that people celebrate their birthday. And the Rebbe even said that though once upon a time it was not done publicly, but privately it was done, it was kept completely quiet. But now, since we're coming closer to the Gula, and the, and the end of Golas, we add a new thing to use, something that's even used from the, in the world, the honoring of a birthday, and that should be used for Gedusha and for holiness, and the Rebbe has all the details of how one celebrates a birthday in a meaningful way, making a fabrengen, taking on achlotis, giving adding tzdoke, and a whole list of things that the Rebbe actually was published that period, in Tov Shemem Ches, that year, 1988, to um, launch this Mifzah of Yemel 
when the Rebbe edited one of the ads in Yiddish about this campaign, the birthday campaign, the Rebbe wrote that this is the day that is the beginning of a person's being, a person's Zion, a person's Metzius. And that is therefore a most important day because everything else follows. If you don't exist, nothing else is there either. So birthday signifies the existence of a human being, the fact that you were placed here and you were born, God chose you to come to this world. So it's not a small matter. It defines your entire mission. It defines your entire existence and your entire being. So there you have an application from Chafeyad, the, the Rebetzin's birthday, as well as according to one of the opinions, Rabbi Yeshua, it's also, um, Rabbi, Lozer, Rabbi Yeshua, I'm sorry, Chafeyad is also the day that the birthday of the universe. But Chafeyad and Nivra Elam, there's two opinions, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Lozer, whether it was the 25th of Elul or the 25th of Adar, 25th of El would make Rosh Chedesh Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah. 25th of Adar would make Rosh Chedesh Nisan, the beginning, Rosh Hashanah. So the, the answer is that it's both. And the Rebbe has a whole explanation. Tasefus says that in thought, the world was created in the 25th of Adar. And in action, it was created 25th of El. And then Apikabal, the Arizal, and Chesidus. It's a whole discussion on this matter the primis and chetzenis of the worlds, but bottom line is that also the 25th of El is also signified, <coughs> excuse me, signified as a birthday of the universe. And we know Elam Kotnza Adam, the universe, a macrocosm, is also a universe, a microcosm is the human being. And the Rebetzin, embodying the Rebbe, and the Rebetzin of our generation, the leader of our generation, the seventh generation, embodies this macrocosmic birthday in her person, of her birthday. And through her, of course, everything else came, as the Rebbe himself said, that on Yudal Kislev, when he married the Rebbe, in Chaim Mushka, this is the day that bound me to you and you to me. Because it was Bederach in natural ways, it was the Rebbe that gave the Rebbe, so to speak, his connection to the Friedrich Rebbe, being his son-in-law. We also have a beautiful letter from the a series of letters from the Friedrich Rebbe to the Rebbe back in uh, the Tafresh, uh, early Tzadiks, I think Tzadik Bezer, Tzadik Gimel, where um, I think I may have talked about it once, but it's just really, really nice. Where the Friedrich Rebbe writes to the Rebbe, remember this is the Rebbe still, uh, they're talking about they got married in Tafresh Petes, so we're talking about a few years after their marriage, they were already in Poland, and the Friedrich Rebbe writes to the Rebbe, briefly he writes to him, I think this is in the summer of Pei Tzadik Gimel, or Tzadik Beis, that I'm sure you appreciate the special jewel, Simateva, that you have, the special treasure that you have. And then, a few months later, Friedrich Rebbe says, I see you did not comment on that, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that you do appreciate this special treasure. Friedrich Rebbe writes back to the Friedrich Rebbe, that he's not clear what the Friedrich Rebbe means, which treasure. And then finally, on Chafei Adar, a few months later, from when the initial letter came out, and the second follow-up letter, Friedrich Rebbe says, it's none other than my daughter, Chaim that beautiful treasure. We have that letter, very personal, but also very revealing, very beautiful, revealing to us Friedrich Rebbe's chivus, of course, to his daughter, but also showing the Rebbe and, focus and emphasizing to the Rebbe the connection. 
So just as to the appreciation of Chafei Adar, which of course is the birthday of our Rebetzin, and that birthday continues on even after Histalkus, as the Rebbe brings again and again from the Rebbe Rashab, and from Halacha uh, and Nigla, from the Ragat that the years are added even after Neshama leaves, and Neshama continues to grow. And that's why we continue saying the Kapitel Tilim, even though it's not a Neshama Beguf anymore, but the Neshama every year goes up another level. It means each birthday adds another dimension to that, that soul's ascent in higher and higher levels. Okay. Let's talk then, Chassidus applied to Tazria, HaChedesh, and Reshchedesh Nisan, which all converge this coming Shabbos. This coming Shabbos is Pashas Tazria. It's Pashas HaChedesh, the extra chapter that we read from the four Pashas, as I mentioned last week. Shkolim, Zocher, Pora, and then HaChedesh is either Reshchedesh Nisan as it is this year, or Shabbos that blesses Nisan. And that's, of course, the chapter where Hashem tells Moshe, this is the new month, the new month of the new year, the lunar year, which is the beginning of the year in the lunar cycle and the month when I will redeem and we will take the Jews out of Mitzrayim 15 days later, which would be Pesach. They all converge on this coming Shabbos. So let's talk a moment. What's common denominator, I think, jumps out at us immediately. They both, have, they all have, all three things have the common denominator of redemption. Tazria, what does Tazria mean? Birth. Ishiki Tazria, the Yolda Zachar, when a woman will conceive and give birth to a Zachar, to a male. Tazria comes from the word Zera, which is growth or birth and um, conception. Tazria, the ultimate Zria, when we plant something and we sow something, and what comes out of it is, of course, is the Gula itself. The Gula is the outgrowth of all the work that we've been doing throughout history that we do that ultimately blossoms into the redemption, the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. And that's why it says, Isha Kisazriya refers to Isha Knesset Yisrael, each Jew and all Jews, who are Malchus, and when we do our effort, we do the Zriya. And Zriya refers to all the mitzvahs a person does and sows and plants the seeds. What, what does it give birth to? Zachar, Shir Zachar, Lashed Lavi, it says that the first nine songs were all Lashon Ekeva, Shira, a Lashon Ekeva female, and the Shir Zachar will be when Mashiach comes, a type of permanence, Zachar here referring to the strength and the permanence and eternity of the redemption. There you have it in Chazaria. Pasha Sachedish, of course, is the beginning of the Gula of Mitzrayim, and Kimet Seitz Mitzrayim, Maren and Neflaz. The final redemption parallels and follows the redemption of Mitzrayim, just as when the days when they left Mitzrayim, I will show you wonders in the future. And Chedesh HaGeula, that this is the month, in the month of Nisan, we were redeemed, that was back over 3,300 years ago when we left Egypt, Mitzrayim, and Benissa Nasidin Legal, Nisan, we will in the future be redeemed in the coming Gula Mitis Vashlem. And of course, Rishchedish Nisan, the third item of next Shabbos, is the Rishchedish itself, the Rish, the head that concludes the entire month, of course, the redemption. So, what's the message of redemption? When you ask the redemption, you right away want to know redeem, redeem from what? People could understand if I was, in, if I was, I was trapped. 
or held hostage, God forbid, or imprisoned, or under oppression, either of Egypt or of the other oppressors, all the way to the Nazis, in the last generation. So we could understand redeemed from oppression. But now we live in freedom. We are not oppressed. We can serve God as we see fit. We can send our children to any school. So where's the redemption from what? So as the Rabbeim explained, and the Rebbe especially, especially in the Maimorim said after the Six-Day War in Tavshin Chav, the end of Chav Zayin, the beginning of Tavshin Chav Ches, and the Pasuk, V'hoi Yitaka B'Shefer Gadol, that the Shefer Gadol will be heard, a great shofar will be, the sound of a great shofar will be heard, and what will it do? It will draw Nidachim, those who are pushed away in Eretz Mitzrayim, in Egypt, and those who are lost in Eretz Ashur. Ashur is Assyria. And what are these two levels? And they will come, they come to bow on the holy mountain, meaning Yerushalayim, Irakedish, the holy mountain, Harabayis, Besamikdash. The Dochem Beretz Mitzrayim explains Chesidus, refers to the stages in Golis, in exile, when we were under oppression, poverty, impoverished, tortured, exiled. So we're pushed away. Nedochim is like pushed under, subjugated. Then there's another type of Golis. It's called Eretz Ashur. Ashur from the word Eshar with an Aleph, prosperity, opulence, also connected to wealth. And there, it's even worse. It's Evdim. You get lost there because the apathy that comes from comfort zones, as with all the blessing that's in it, can also create a very deep Golis where you think everything is fine. You don't even recognize there's a problem. In the Nitzrayim, you recognize there's a problem. You see an oppression. You see bondage. You see slavery. You see genocide, God forbid. So it's obvious that you cry out for help and you want to be redeemed from it. But when things seemingly are comfortable, we become apathetic, indifferent, complacent, glagiltic, adishut in Hebrew. So that is Avdim. You can get lost in it, not just pushed away, because you become so lost you're not even aware in the words of the Baal Shem Tev, Haster, Haster, Panay, there's a darkness you know, so at least it's dark. You know that there's something lacking. And you're thirsty. Then there's a darkness that conceals the darkness. You don't even know it's dark. It says the same Baal Shem Tev, My heart, my soul, is thirsty to you. In a parched and dry land, Came by Kedush Chazisicha. So Baal says the Baal Shem Tov came by Kedush Chazisicha. So also in Kedush, in holiness, when I'm not, when it's not parched, I should see you. Says the Baal Shem Tov. What's the what's the context? He says Halavai be Kedush Chazisicha. Just as I was thirsty and in very deep yearning and pining, because I was thirsty for the water, for the spiritual waters, to you, Tzam Lecho Nafshi. Halavai that Bekedesh, when I'm in Kedesh and everything is beautiful and it's holy and everything is comfortable and more than comfortable, godliness, I should also, Chazisich, I should also see you with that same passion, with that same search, with that same hunger and thirst. Because that's a difficult challenge. That's the challenge of our times. So Geula, as the Rebbe explained and told us time and again, is a process. Chassidus explains it's a process. It's not an event alone. 
it concludes with an event, but it's a process where every good deed, every mitzvah that we do, and it has been done throughout history, is a building block. And when it all accumulates, it then erupts, that we are in the day Rashvi, the seventh generation, the end of the process. Like Moshe's seventh generation from Avram, that brought the Shekhinah down below, in the temple, in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary. We too are the seventh generation charged with finally bringing down the Shekhinah, this time permanently, in Adira Betachtein, in Bosa Legani, Legani Legnuni, just as it was in the beginning, but even greater, in a permanent way, in the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. But you have to feel the thirst for it. You have to feel the need that Elokus is lacking, even if things are comfortable, even if when everybody's healthy, thank God, and all things are going well, and that's all a blessing, to still have the thirst and the desperation for godliness. Not for, from evil to good, but from good to what is ultimate perfection. The Rebbe, of course, went to war against apathy and never hesitated to awaken us to this reality that Golis is an illness. Not because we feel bad, not because we're sick, God forbid, not because we're oppressed, but because the mere fact that the world is not aligned with its purpose, the mere fact that godliness is not revealed in this world, the mere fact that we can be living duplicitous lives and your heart can be in one place, your faith can be in one place and your heart in another, that alone is the deepest type of goal. Goal is pinimi. As the Rebbe said, Chof Ches Nissen, 28 years ago. So that's the lesson to us and our personal application connecting as we about to enter the Chedesh HaGeula. For more cross-reference, for more context and more perspective on these topics, first on the topic of 25th of Adar that I mentioned, go to episodes 155 and 205, as I mentioned, it's all available at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And regarding Tazriya Chedesh and Chedesh Nissen, episodes 110, 60, and also 64, 205, and 209. Now let's go to some questions. New questions, relevant questions, timely questions. So recently there's been talk about websites. So the question is, what responsibility do websites have to their readers? Today we have a new form of media. Once it was physical newspapers or magazines. And um, today it's online, accessible to anyone, to any, everyone at any time, on desktops, on laptops, on mobile phones. So when you have a website that is a public domain, public domain meaning it's, yes, it could be privately owned, but it's, for, it's offering public news and public service and so on, what obligation do they have to their readers? Okay, very relevant question, a very timely question in many ways, relevant on many, many levels. So I personally have a certain personal touch on this regarding my own life because my father was a journalist and he was the founder and publisher of the Algemeine Journal. So though obviously there are differences between magazines and journals and, mag- and newspapers and websites, but I just want to share, to begin with, we always want to share something grounded from the Rebbe. So the Algemeine, which was founded in 1972, very strongly with encouragement of the Rebbe, and the Rebbe actually gave the name Algemeine, uh, who else would give such a name, and explained to my father, because the newspapers be all-encompassing, and Algemeine means general all-encompassing, and my father once asked the Rebbe a question that, um, for let me say, I'll share a few, three, two, three anecdotes. 
One, when it was just founded, then a Rebbe was pushing it. My father asked the Rebbe if he wants Algamin to be a Labavitch night newspaper. So the Rebbe said, Labavitch and a newspaper are two different agendas. The, the, the agenda of a newspaper is to get as many readers and, and have the broadest type of circulation. The agenda of Labavitch, Chabad, is spreading chsidis and Yiddishkeit, Yifutzam and Nesachachutzam. So it's not the same thing. Labavitch is not a newspaper. A newspaper is not Labavitch. One thing. There was a, a while later, I'm not sure what year it was, there was some askonim, some activists in the community that had suggested to my father, maybe it's worthwhile to have a vad of rabbonim, rabbis, who will look over everything that goes into the newspaper, make sure it's kosher and proper articles and ads and pictures and so on. My father said, what, did you ask the Rebbe? They said, it's mashmet. They think the Rebbe would like that. So my father said, instead of thinking and speculating, let me ask the Rebbe directly. And my father had an opportunity, many opportunities. He was in Yechidus. And at some point in the Yechidus, my father says, there was some that suggested that maybe there should be a vad of rabbis to look over and oversee the newspaper. The Rebbe smiled and said to my father, what are you going to do if they say to you to close down the newspaper? So my father said, no, the Rebbe says, I should have a vad of rabbonim. In other words, a team of rabbis. A, uh, a, and... And, and they said to close it down. Of course, I'll listen to them. The Rebbe picked up his hands and said with a, another smile, he said, Vikum Rabbonim, what do Rabbonim have to do with paskin about a newspaper? Rabbonim have to paskin, have to rule that every free moment a person has, a Jew has, has to be used for learning Tehran. Every second you don't learn Tehran, it's bitl Tehran. And the Alter Rebbe already says in the beginning of Tanya how, the, how serious of an issue that is. It says, newspapers are for Jews who don't listen to rabbis or who don't ask rabbis. And when you put a word of Teirah or Chassidus in a newspaper, then it reaches even such Jews. The Rebbe went on and shared. My father, he says that when they were in Warsaw, Friedrich Rebbe told them to go find a newspaper where to print some of the Friedrich Rebbe's talks. The Friedrich Rebbe was very into that. Sefer Zechrenes, for example, the memoirs of the Friedrich Rebbe were actually printed in the Togmorgen Journal and early, an earlier stage, it was printed in the Amerikaner. And who wrote them? David Leib Meckler. You'll see right in the beginning of Sefer Zechrenes. He was the editor-in-chief of the Togmarger Journal. So back in Warsaw, the Friedrich Rebbe sent the Rebbe. The Rebbe is telling this to my father to find a newspaper where to print the Friedrich Rebbe's talks. So the Rebbe came back to the Friedrich Rebbe with a list of five newspapers. Remember, this is you're talking about before World War II. Friedrich Rebbe looked at the list. He said, the whole Varshan or fifth Zeitungen, all of Warsaw, there's only five newspapers. Remember, there was almost a million Jews in Warsaw. There are many, many more newspapers. So, so my, my, the Rebbe said to the Friedrich Rebbe, no, those are the Frume. These are the religious newspapers. And the Friedrich Rebbe said to the Rebbe, the oldest the Rebbe told my father, if I want to reach religious Jews, we can distribute the pamphlets in the Stiblach, in the shuls, all over uh, Warsaw. I want to read Jews that maybe not going to the shuls. So my father asked the Rebbe, what newspaper was it ultimately published? The Rebbe didn't say the name. He said some type of more left socialist type of paper. That was the Rebbe's response. One more anecdote. The Rebbe, my father once told the Rebbe that some people are complaining that the Algemeen is not religious enough. And the Rebbe said, and probably others are going to say it's too religious. Now, I'm not suggesting that we learn lessons in every situation, we know when the Rebbe speaks to one person or one entity, 
it means that entity. And perhaps the Algemin had a particular role to play. But it's interesting to know that Ebbas Cook, how he looked at something. So now let's take it to, being that I grew up in this home and my father was a responsible publisher, and yes, he had complaints from people. Some people didn't like this and some people didn't like that. You couldn't make everybody happy. So what standards did he use? Now, the fact of the matter is a website, a responsible website, obviously not just for business purposes, wants to satisfy its customers. From ethical purposes, it has a responsibility. Because people look to it for news or for updates or for announcements. And you want it to be on the, on the highest possible standard. But at the same time, who defines the standard? You have very different opinions. You ask even different rabbis, even different chassidah So my suggestion would be that every public domain, and I'm saying even the not Jewish one, is also has responsibility. You don't just put things out there because you're dealing with a public they rely, like the Rebbe would say many times in Fabreng, that state not citing, if it says in the newspaper, everyone thinks it's true. But it's more than that. It creates an image and a perception. So there's responsibility anyone in the public domain in that way. Anyone who's a writer, anyone who's a speaker, anyone who is communicating to a large audience or a small audience has extra responsibility because they're not just a private citizen. Extra responsibility to make sure that what they convey is not just true, but also reflective of the standards that, in this case, we're talking Chabad standards, the Rebbe standards. Being that not in day say and Shavas, there are different opinions. So how do you make a decision? That's why every entity should have, hopefully, its own internal checks and balances, where it has people that are objective, that help establish the guidelines. And when there's a doubt, you ask two, three people, and that way you try, try to stay as as honest as possible and maintain the highest integrity as possible. Unfortunately, we live in a world where not only there are different opinions, people also can take on extreme positions and hostile positions and angry positions. And then you can get the situation where you start trying to do things like boycotts and other type of efforts. I personally do not think that's the approach to take. First of all, do you know whether you'll be successful or not? Even though they say, it's a tutve, it hurts you, you cry out, but still. You want it to be methodical and appropriate. Second of all, your opinion of what something may be, may there may be other people that are also legitimate and have a different opinion than you. So I think before we take any positions of strong statements, you have to do everything possible to higher the standard by trying to influence with Gutzkeit. My father was an independent journalist, and he was very independent. And yet he definitely had checks and balances. Did he not make mistakes? He made mistakes. He had his own internal way of checking, and... It's not my business to tell you or not to tell you, not everything I knew myself, how he did that. But he had that responsibility. And still, sometimes he wrote something and one party didn't like it. And then he wrote exactly the opposite and the other party didn't like it. So this is the responsibility of any type of journalism or public communication. But if you do have integrity and you have objective parties that you can talk to, that to me is the key to everything. Whether you'll be perfect or not, we don't know. Now, everyone has the, the, the freedom to visit a website or not visit a website. But that still doesn't mean the website should not have standards and the highest possible standards. I would strongly, uh, um, strongly, uh, strongly not suggest, I'm looking for strongly, um, suggest that boycotts and angry and, and very st- strong terms should not be used because they usually don't end up with good results. Everything with goodness. Now, as you say, I tried with good and people don't listen. 
So you know what? Maybe you have to try again. Maybe you have to try with a different approach. And there's nothing wrong with putting on some type of pressure. But I think the best way to do it is that it shouldn't come across that there's a battle, there's a war. Because when you do that, there's always casualties, there's always collateral damage, and nobody really benefits from it. Now, of course, that's my opinion. Others may have a different opinion, and you're all entitled to your opinion. I never uh, censor anyone's opinion. You feel free to write to me, and I'll be happy to read your thoughts. And I think it's critical that we realize that there is a great responsibility. At the same time, there are standards, and that the standards themselves are also subject to many different opinions. So that's why you need to have, as I said again, a type of, of a diverse inner, inner checks and balances, a diverse people you consult, especially when something is more controversial. And that way you can stay and say at least you're living up to that standard. That's the way I would suggest it, and you can nothing wrong with announcing your policies and general policies, but you also don't want to become a situation that anyone who suddenly doesn't like something, and there are people that are always not going to like something, are going to be able to say, you know what, I don't like what you wrote, even if you have high standards, this time I don't like something, and therefore I'm going to use aggressive measures. You can't be subject to such type of threats and blackmail, because at the end of the day, then it takes away from the integrity of any good side as well. So you have to have a good balance, and I think mature people, with a little godless hamechen, can definitely come, come together and put their heads together and come up with it. the standards. Again, it won't be perfect, but that is the responsibility of a website to its readers and to its, uh, to its subscribers, to its advertisers as well. Okay. Um, and finally, this is a complicated business. I can tell you, I lived in a home where ne- no one is ever happy, but at the same time, you have a tremendous contribution to make because you can actually help shape in a good way, public opinion, and give people information, and give people wise information, and even diverse opinions, so they can make wise choices. All, of course, based on the integrity and the standards that have been established, and, and, um, and, have, and uh, by the Rebbe, and including by Rabbonim, and Rabbonim as well, are also subject to be asked, Mehechan Dantuni, from where do you take what you're saying, in a respectable way, and there's different countries have different standards, and that too is subject to many opinions. And I think any, any Rav will tell you different communities, different standards. Now that doesn't mean completely the extremes, but it means that there is room for this latitude when it comes to this. Okay. Strongly dissuade. That was the word I was looking for. Strongly dissuade. <clears throat> okay. What future is there in this challenging day and age for a yeshiva student without a secular education? How do you explain the Rebbe's approach in our times? Okay, this of course is back to the topic that has been addressed many times here. The Rebbe's approach to secular education, basically negating it, definitely in the general sense of it. The question is to what what extent, listen, teaching your child how to ride a bicycle or drive a car or basic mathematics, obviously this is something that's done. The Rebbe did not negate that. But in a formal way, and I discussed this at length, I'm not going to go through all I discussed. But since the topic keeps coming up, I would say that Rebbe's approach remains eternal for all times. Yes, there may be challenges today, and here's the question as it's spelled out in more detail. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. How do you reconcile the Rebbe's shita with secular studies when we see more than ever that the shlichus spots are drying up? And what future is there in this challenging day and age for an aholotaranik, yeshiva bacher, without a secular education? The Rebbe wanted kulei kedush, Everything should be Kaddish. In other words, uh, 
Kodesh Kedush means Limude Kedush, Torah studies, all day Torah learning. How do you reconcile this approach in our challenging times? Kind regards. Another person writes, my question is, what is the Rebbe's approach on young men that have just left yeshiva are now at marriageable age and need to find their source of parnasa income? And there's two parts to that. One, finding what type of creative things you'd like to pursue. And two, how to turn that, whatever job you can get a hold of, into a somewhat of a decent experience versus just jumping into a relationship because that's what everyone in the system at your age does. Okay, so... Number one is I've spoken about this at length and probably can't add much. So let me refer you first of all to when I've spoken about it. Episodes 153, 201, 203, 207, 232, and 233. More about secular studies I spoke about in episodes 24 through 27. 149, 153, 202, and 203, 209, and 221. You can go there. They're all time-stamped. You can see exactly what was said. I gathered from all the different sikhs of the Rebbe, the position, and how to apply it to our times. As far as the question about shlichas, first of all, you say dried up. It's not dried up. It could be there are challenges today how to find a shlichas, but there are 14 and a half million Jews that have not been reached. Uh, most of them have not been reached. A million have been reached. 10% have been reached. 20%. That's number one. There's 7.5 billion people on this planet that have to be reached as well. So to suggest it's dried up is absolutely incorrect. We may need new creative ways how to reach those people online or other ways, but there's plenty to do. If a person is dedicated to the core mission of bringing the Geula through your Futsam and Chut, so there are many ways to do it, and ways where you could also financially support it and be financially successful. I've spoken about this, and you just have to use your minds and think of it in that way if you really believe that this is the core mission which is, obviously that's what was stated by the Rebbe, stated by Mashiach to the Baal Shem Tov. And this has remained the core mission of, of Chabad, and really of all Eden, should be of all Eden on this planet. So it's a matter of finding how, not if, whether. Uh, regarding the issue of secular education and Parnosa, look, I'm not coming here to judge anyone or criticize anyone. But if you want to live up to the Rebbe's standards, the Rebbe has spoken what he wants. And what our tachlis is, what the ultimate purpose of why your neshama came down here. To have a certain measure of skills that are necessary to survive, necessary to work, to live in this world, that is a given. That, that is something that we all have to be, have in our, in our... And our parents are responsible to give that to their children. The question of how much does one need to graduate with degrees, in particular secular studies, from the Rebbe's point of view, that's not necessary to succeed in life and to even succeed in business. But definitely not to succeed in the shlichus of a person. So, as I said, I spoke about this at length, and I'm just reiterating it again because this is a topic that comes up and again and again. And a person does go and look for a parnosa, so fine, you're going to go to some trade school or some classes online or so on, you do that, I would not tell you, don't do it. If that's the only thing that's left for you to do and you're not looking any other way, then try your best to learn on the job or learn from experts. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to college. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to immerse yourself in a whole array of secular studies. Maybe you have to study that trade that you want to learn, whether it's computer programming or design or other, uh, or other uh, skills. And basically knowing that it's all a means to an end. So even if a person goes into business, even if a person is going into 
the trades or the skills of our time. That, know that that's a means to an end. The end is to create a dira betachtenim, a home for God in this world. And when you know that's the mission, then you learn what's necessary to do whatever you have to do. Just like when you drive a car, nobody drives a car to drive a car. You drive a car to get somewhere in order to fulfill something. You learn to knock in a nail with a hammer and use a tool chest also for some purpose. And the same thing, whether it's in, in business or in other type of skills and other, and other skill sets, are all means to a higher end. And that's what I'll suffice with that. And let's move to the next question. Can a Rebbe make a mistake? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Your classes are insightful and delightful. My question concerns the belief in the infallibility of a Rebbe. It seems almost axiomatic to many chassidim that the Rebbe is the last word on any topic. Some ascribe it to Ruach HaKedosh. Ruach HaKedosh literally means the Holy Spirit, that Hashem has given him a certain higher consciousness, a higher vision. Some to genius, some to both. But what are the sources for this belief? Tanakh is filled with tzaddikim making mistakes. As in the Talmud, I believe it is Rava who is quoted several times saying, That the words that I said before you were a mistake. And he was one of the greatest Amuroim, sages, Talmudic sages. I have heard that the Rebbe quoted this on at least one occasion, announcing that he had erred, though I have not seen that in print and do not know the context. So when's the belief in infallibility? Thank you and wishing you a wonderful and the sweetest of Pesachs. Okay, so firstly, let me refer you to episodes 198 to 199. It's a very good question. And though it's not so comfortable always to read a question, can a Rebbe make a mistake? Can the Rebbe make a mistake? But since it's a question people have, so let me address it. Let me begin with this. There's a sikha from the Rebbe, Lech Lecha, Chelik Hei, volume, Lekutah is volume 5. Talks about the concept of chet, sin, by the Ovis. Now we know the Ovis, they were Merkava, 24 7, the Alta Rebbe says, of Gimel and other places, and Tanya, that they were 24 7, completely Merkava, a chariot, a vehicle for godliness. No wavering one second. And yet the word chet is used. So the Rebbe explains, based on Chesidis, that chet comes from the word chesar. Chet can mean a sin. Could also mean a deficiency that, based on the level what they could have reached, they didn't reach the ultimate. So it's not a God forbid a true transgression. It's just based on that level. We talk about Moshe Rabbeinu hitting the stone instead of speaking to the stone, and because of that, he was punished. It was a chil Hashem because he changed. God said, "Speak to the stone." Now, hitting a stone and speaking to a stone both require the same amount of faith, because a stone does not have water, does not give water. And the first time Hashem said to Moshe, speak. Hit, rather, hit the stone. So Moshe is not like if he said, well, stone doesn't give water, that skepticism is not appropriate. But what did he do? He hit the stone. So, but on the level of Moshe, that high standard, that little shift for the Jewish people, that was already enough. So there are times when we say an error does not mean a full-blown error as you and I may make a mistake, but it could be a deficiency based on the level where he could have reached. We know it says that the Ebershter created 50 gates of Bina. Nun Shari Bina. Chamishim Shari Bina. Nivre Beil. Created 50 gates. And 49 were given to us. Even Moshe, 
The person who spoke face to face to God, the person who saw God. And yet it says the 50th gate he was unable to achieve till Har Nevoi, Nevoi is Nun Boy, says the Magid, that's where he got Shara Nun. Because he's lacking the Shara Nun, that's why he's called Chela. Chela is a Gematria Memtes. Chela means a sick person. We talk about a sick person. It could be someone who's a geisha, someone who's, God forbid, struggling to breathe, someone who's on his deathbed. And here you say, Chela, Moshe Rabbeinu. Chela's av. Sick, lovesick. Why? Because he was lacking the memtes, he was lacking the 50th gate. Now most of us don't even have the first or second gate. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, lacking. If the gula does not come, so for a tzaddik, there's lacking. When we say that to Arizal, he said, Al-Chet. So his Talmudim asked, why is Arizal saying Al-Chet, Atzadik Gomor? On what? Especially such sins. So two answers are given. One, he's saying it for the generation, as a leader of the generation. Number two, Atzadik has the whole generation, Neshama Kolis has the whole generation within him. Famous story of the Mitle Rebbe, that when he got a tikkun, or appeared to someone, he had to find it within him. So Bedakus, in a subtle way, all these transgressions exist in the Neshama. That's why it says in Mashiach, the Rebbe brings it in Baslagani Tavshinalf, that he will suffer and have uh, from our wounds. Why? Why should he suffer due to our wounds? Because that's a Neshama Klolis. Would you compare it to our, mis, uh, our, um, uh, our um, setbacks and our transgressions and our weaknesses? Absolutely not. But Bedaka is the Dakas in a very subtle way. So that's the first thing. That obviously exists until the Gula Amitiz Erech, what a tzaddik, what a Rebbe can achieve. The Rebbe did not bring the Gula, and that's why he said what he said, that everything I did was Lehevel Larik. How could you say that? All that the Rebbe accomplished? The Medrash says in Kehel Rabba that the Tereb Elam Hazah is Hevel, Hevel, the same word. Hevel Hulagabe Shamashiach. How could you call it Hevel? Hevel means naught, it means nothingness. The whole Tereb, Matan Tereb, Tanoim, Amaroim, Shas, Mishnah, Gemara, Rishenim, Achreinim, everything is all Hevel. Because if you know what the Torah is like when Mashiach comes, Mashiach, compared to that, it's compared to relative to that, it's called Hevel. So that's relative, relative. Now, as far as why we say infallibility, a human being is a human being. A human being, like you said from Rava, can make a mistake. It's true. But the Rebbe has higher keiches. He's a human being, but God also protects him. And shechina medaberes meteich greine. So when he speaks, we say the shechina speaks through his throat. So then how could the Rebbe say what he said? Because there's a famous story, Rabbi Hillel was sitting at a table, they were discussing the Maimah that Tzamech Tzedek had said earlier. Tzamech Tzedek was also there. There's different versions of the story. And Rabbi Hillel was arguing with the Tzamech Tzedek, Pshat and the Maimah. So they said, how could you argue the Rebbe himself said this Maimah? So, so when the Rebbe said it, it was that was like it was given for Sinai, so obviously it's divine. But now we're speaking Al-Piseichel. And Al-Piseichel, we're all discussing it, the Rebbe's using his Seichel, I'm using my Seichel. Now obviously, that's, the story ends there. Obviously that doesn't mean the Rebbe's Seichel could be greater than your Seichel, but there's the Rebbe as he's a Chochem, not just a Novi, or not just a Baal Ruch HaKedish, or not just Shechina Medaberes, even then we say that a Rebbe Seichel is probably infallible. But you could see that there's levels and therefore there's possibility that a Rebbe, as he's a boss of Adam and not relying on being that channel, could perhaps say something and then later say, I reconsider it. Which the Rebbe did say more than once. 
many times. But it's not a contradiction because a Rebbe is still a Rebbe and people relied on the Rebbe when the Rebbe said something. That said, even the doctor said, do something, the Rebbe said not to do it. You could say, how does the Rebbe know? That's why the Rebbe is a Rebbe. He's not coming with his own keiches. So the source for it is, if you take away the Amun and Meisha, Meisha was the one that carried the Teretos. So you could say, how do you know that? Maybe Meisha didn't hear it right exactly on Har Sinai. If you say that, the whole Teretos can be disqualified. So you have to say that Abishta gave Meisha the Kayach that he would convey the Teretos exactly as he heard it without adding, without subtracting. And yet then Meisha sits in a Bezdin with other Skenim and they argue and they discuss as, the, as it says in Medrash, that Abishta tells Meisha, Memtes Panim, 49 ways to interpret a Pasuk this way, 49 this way. And Meisha says, so what's the conclusion? Abishta says, lahates. You'll follow the consensus. And obviously Meisha wanted, why not just give me straight, tell me what to do. No, I want you to be partners in Tate. I want you to argue it out. And Meisha could say something, and there could be another Talmud Chacham that could argue with Meisha. So you see, Meisha is then manifesting in so-called Hishtalshlus. Now we see this even by Hashem. There's a point where we say God is obviously infallible and beyond everything. But then there's how God manifests Himself and says, How could Kriyas Yamsu be difficult for God? So Chassidus answers, the Mitla Rebbe answers, and other Maimarim. Because the way God, He Himself subjected Himself and bound Himself to the rules of nature, I will not suspend the rules of nature. So in Havayahu Alekim, in Alekim Begimatriya Teva, in the world that God Himself created, He Himself has bound Himself to His own rules. So Kosha Legabi, those rules. It's obviously not difficult. Legabi Kol Yachol. God can do whatever He wants. And then you have expressions, Kaloni Mizreya, Kaloni Bereshi, that when a person below is in pain, God says, My hand, my hand hurts, my, my arm hurts, my head hurts. God's hurts? Yeah, but we say, how could you say that? Because there's a way God manifests and says the Ishtalshus, as Chassidus explains in the Esos and how he interacts with existence. On that level, there's Kavyochel, so to speak. God is interacting, and you could Kavyochel. The Tater speaks in the language of man, so therefore, there could be Kavyochel, so to speak. Somewhat, of, you could say, a Chassidin, even in godly energy, so to speak. So, Makoshkin, for sure, Tzadikim Deim Lebeiram, that you could explain the same idea by Tzadikim in their own way. Okay. Next question. Who is the Tzadik Yisrael Olam nowadays? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for every, your ever-inspiring weekly My Life Chassidus Applied video classes. I truly enjoy them. My question is, since the passing of the Rebbe, who is the Tzadik Yisrael Olam? Best wishes, for you and yours. Tzadik Yusei De'elam is a posik that the Alta Rebbe brings us in Tanya. Tzadik is the foundation of the world. And that in every tzadik, in every generation, Shoslan, Bechol, Der, God planted in every generation, tzadikim. And at least one tzadik, that's the foundation. As Rashbi said, Im echad anihu. If there's one, it's two. It's, it, there's two, it's you and I, to Rabbi Lozer, his son. And if it's one, I need tzadik Yusei De'elam. So he's asking the question, what about now after Gimel Thomas? First of all, I don't have answers to all questions. I don't know why Gimel Thomas happened. I don't even know what it means. We know there's the Deirashvi. We know the Rebbe is the Nasi of the Deirashvi. And we always were taught and believed that until the Geula comes. So you could firstly say, Tzadik Yisei De'elam, continues in some way. Though it's not fully understood, but it continues. 
Or you say, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. It's up to God how he figures it out. But you have to say there's a logic to tzaddik yusayim, that there's a tzaddik that protects the world, so to speak, that holds it up like a foundation. And you have to say that exists now too. First of all, we see it in our own keiches, things we do, the efforts we make. We see the tzlacha. And secondly, perhaps in this situation, maybe one exception in history, even though it says tzaddik shtakich yatir that after the passing, he's even here present, more present than before, because he's not limited by a body, as the Alter Rebbe explains the Zayar in Ager Sakedish, Simech of Zion, 27. And Yaakov Avinu Loi Mes, so perhaps all that can be applied to here. But beyond that, I'm not going to speculate further, because I'm not an expert in this necessarily, and I don't think anyone really may know. There are things we don't fully understand. But to say, God forbid, that we don't have a Yisraeli, and that for sure not. How it works exactly, that's already up to different ways of interpreting it. Okay, next question. Does Yagaiti Umatsasi actually work? All my, life, all my life I was taught that if you try hard to change yourself, you will succeed. It was explained that if you pre- repeatedly do the right thing, then eventually you won't have to try so hard and it will come naturally. However, experience has shown me that this doesn't always work. As a teenager... I have tried to put effort in davening and saying chitas and also in my midis, my, emo- my personality, like not getting angry, but it has never produced long-term results. I concluded that I was not trying hard enough, but this thought was discouraging. As a young adult, however, I learned that a more effective way of changing habits is to look deeper at what is happening inside myself and change the way I think, thereby changing the way I act. Obviously, there's still the simple effort of trying to do the right thing. Is this what our Chachamim meant when they said, try hard and you will succeed? Or did they mean controlling the negative habit until it stops? Thank you. Well, let's say the full Maimar Chazal, which is one of the Yudbeis Pesukim Maimar Chazal that the Rebbe chose. Someone who says, I'll time and don't believe it. The Rebbe explains, not just don't accept it, don't even believe it, not even faith can believe such a thing. Someone says, Yegaiti, I made an effort, Loi do not believe them. Someone says, Yegaiti, Metsosi, Taimen. I made an effort and I found it, Taimen. So you have three different statements that make it unequivocal what it means. It means that there's no such thing as making an effort and you will not find. What effort means, I would say, it includes everything, including what you said. Sometimes an effort could be that you're putting an effort in something and then you realize or some objective person tells you you want to achieve those results. You have to do it a different way. That's also part of an effort. Effort doesn't mean just toiling at the same thing again and again. It may mean looking for new ways to achieve the result, the intended result. Effort means also using your ingenuity and finding maybe new ways to do it. The point of effort means that it's not just going to happen automatically. You need to apply yourself. So it's not in the literal limited sense that you keep knocking Let's say you keep knocking on the door and the door is going to finally open. Maybe you have to go through the window. Maybe you have to find another way to open the door. So you're absolutely correct. Sometimes when you're saying effective way of changing habit is to look deeper at what is happening inside myself and change the way you think instead of changing what you do, that is also included in the word yugaiti. Shigaiti Mitsosi is a fundamental principle, frankly, not just in Judaism. In the secular world, they say 99% effort 99% execution, 1% ingenuity or idea, 
or concept. When they say, what do they say? 1%, um, 99% sweat, the effort that we have to put into things. There are different expressions that don't, that don't come to mind right now. So effort is something that everyone knows. When you're persistent, you keep the effort going. One way or the other, you're going to find the result. Now, sometimes Hashem says, this is not the result. You'll get a different result. You'll see in businesses, many times they put an effort to a certain direction, and then they realize that the success will come a different way. But the effort yielded result. That's the point. You guide the mitzosi. The mitzosi comes after you guide. It's not always the mitzosi that you intended. That's another important thing. So both the effort means different efforts can be in the same vein or different ways to reach the intended goal, or the effort will bring a goal that was maybe not exactly as you wanted it, but mitzosi, what you need, and what's more, and will be success in your life. Like I said, it could be you're investing in one in business for one reason, then suddenly you find an opportunity opens up that would never have opened had you not made the effort. And the opportunity makes you extremely wealthy. Would you call that Matsosi? Absolutely. And since we're talking on the topic of Gula, Matsosi, Matsosi, because also the Gemara says three things are coming in front of Mitsiyah, and one of them is Mashiach. So Mashiach too will ultimately come through Yagaiti, but it'll be Matsosi. That even though we made the effort, and even though we are hoping for it, and we're expecting it, and we're awaiting it, there's a certain element of surprise that will happen no matter what. Because it's coming from a place that's higher than Das, Hesach Das, higher than consciousness. Just as another little uh, uh, point here. So Yugaiti, of all our efforts, will definitely bring Matsosi, David, Matsosi, David, Avdecha. Matsosi, that's what the Postuk says, I'll find David. Why find? Because like a Metziah, you'll find it almost like in a non- a deliberate way, in an unsuperconscious fashion. Next question. Giving my son the choice to have a bris later in life. Why can't I give my son the choice to have a bris later in life? I have thoughts on the bris that I wish to share with you. Until now I have taken for granted that circumcision was a given to any Jew, for any Jewish boy. Yet now I find that in search for truth and being intentional, I take nothing that I focus on for granted, if I have a say. I understand that so much about life I have yet to learn, and as most likely that comes, the end, that will come at the end of my lifetime. I will have come and gone with much still unknown. At the same time, for the actions that I do take, I wish to be clear on and take action with my own understanding and responsibility leading me as I grow from my own experiences. Unless it's actually proven that it is safer to cut off a piece of the body that God created a healthy boy with, I choose to allow a son born to me with God's will to decide later in his life for himself rather than have him be circumcised for the sake of tradition. And even as doctors and physicians do find a number of health benefits for circumcision, there are ways to have it done in less extreme fashion than the customary orthodox method which I was raised and likely expected to continue to raise my own. If you have the time and willingness to share your thoughts, I would greatly appreciate your advice or suggestions. With respect. Yes, I absolutely want to address this. This is a very different type of question than we usually get on my life because it is applied. But since it did come in and since it's important to address, I must say to you that I'm a little surprised. Circumcision is not some new modern invention. Circumcision goes back to one of the earliest biblical edicts given to Avram Avinu, almost 4,000 years, 3,800 years. The Jewish people are the only people that have survived for all this time. So they must have done something right. I would go the exact opposite approach. You said it yourself. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean there isn't value. There are many things we don't understand. 
The mere fact that this has been an unbroken tradition and in the mitzvah, done through the most difficult times and the best times, tells you this power to it. Now you may say you don't accept what it says in the Torah. So of course I'm going with the axiom that the Torah is given to us by God and that's God's commandment to Avraham Avinu. And God that created the healthy boy says this is what will make him even healthier. With the different explanations given for that. Rabbi Akiva was already asked by the philosopher if God didn't want, didn't want, did, wanted circumcision, why didn't he create circumcised boys? So Rabbi Akiva answered with the question, if God wanted us to have bread, why didn't he give us bread? Instead, he gave us the ability to plant seeds, grain, and then the grain we have to process, we have to um, cultivate, and then we process, and then we have to thresh it, and then we cut it, and we, and and we um, crush it, and we use it for flour, and the flour we mix with water, and it turns into bread. Because God wants a partnership in this world, He gives us the resources, and He wants us to develop those resources. But the fact is that circumcision has been done in an unbroken chain for thousands of years. So I would not tamper with success on a very basic level. If you start reading the deeper reasons, you can also understand also some of the reasons. Though we may never fully understand God's commandments, but that's how I would approach it. So I would strongly discourage you from taking this attitude, but take the other attitude, which is do it, and not has any takola, has any negative thing ever come out from someone being circumcised. If anything, there are health benefits, as you mentioned, but even if not, so that's the way I would approach it, and I say it very strongly, because when you come from an approach where we see thousands of years and we see what the Torah says unambiguously about this mitzvah, it's one of the mitzvahs that is as clear as day what it means. The 13 times it says bris in the Torah, and this is the covenant between me and God, between God says between me and you, and the Jewish people, and many, many millions of others, including Muslims, who have also embraced this command, and uh, even others who do so for the different reasons they have. Okay. Let me do one more. Since we've been talking about tefillah davening, I said I would, um, I'll just address one point in davening, then go to the chassidus question. So with the, this has been a continuing series. How can we da- begin to daven the way chassidus expects of us? Called prayer continued. Thank you very much for addressing this subject again. You explained that the key is that after learning some chassidus, one should endeavor to become excited about neshama matters and alakus matters. Right. Rabbi Jacobson, please explain this critical component. One, how does one get excited about neshama matters and godly matters? Beyond the feeling of having understood what was studied, where does personal excitement about the levels one has studied come from? Please explain the steps, beginning with learning a piece of chassidus before davening, that one takes to make this happen. What does this emotional work look like? Please be specific enough so that we can apply this. Chassidus applied. Okay. There's more questions, but I'll do that next week. <clears throat> How do we get excited about anything? So some things come natural to us because we live in this physical world and we just naturally have inclinations to physical pleasures. And we get excited by them. It could be food, it could be nonsense, it could be something a little valuable reading, intellectual pursuits. The way you get excited about something is appreciating it. When it comes to neshama matters and elokus matters, God made it not so easy. He made elokus is bishachus and elum is bepshitus. The natural inclination of a person, we feel physical hunger, we feel physical thirst. We don't feel spiritual thirst. But that doesn't mean we can't achieve it. That's exactly the mitzvah. So when you learn chassidus in the morning, you learn it in a way, not just a theory, 
You learn it like it is part of who you are. This is the soul that makes you tick. This is my soul. And my soul, let's say you're learning that neshama is made up of nefesh ruach, neshama chay yechidim. Or neshama is made up of keiches, meichen and midas. You're learning about yourself. The more you can relate to it personally, that is the most exciting thing. You're learning what makes you work, what makes you function. Elokus is not just an abstract idea that's godliness. Godliness is godly energy that sustains us. Godliness is the truth of reality. And as you climb the ladder of understanding godliness, you're climbing the ladder of understanding emes. There's great pleasure to know the truth. There's no joy than resolving doubts. All intellectual pursuits are that way. You have a lot of confusion, and you achieve clarity. What do you feel like? You get excited. Same thing here. When you can understand the inner workings that make existence exist, what energy, what divine energy flows, and how it flows, and the different ways that it sustains and, and energizes and vitalizes and revitalizes existence, there's an excitement in that. No different than the Havdalas, a physicist, getting excited about discovering subatomic particles and their different ways of functioning. The key is to relate to it personally. The key is to relate it to it in an applied way. You're asking me, for example, I give it every week when we speak about different things. You talk about understanding the deeper dimension of reality and ultimately what put reality here in the first place. So we would have to take a piece of chassidus and do that. Any piece of chassidus you learn, let's say you learn, I'm just learning in Ayin Beis now, we learned this morning about, <clears throat> we're learning about Ganed Natachten, Ganed Nelian. Then Ganed Natachten, even though it's elokus, godliness, but you feel it, you're conscious of it. In Ganed Nelian, you don't sense it. It's like being in the zone where you're just experiencing something without feeling the subject and the object. We can apply this. For example, Lahavdu, when you read a book, you can read the book and be very aware. I'm reading a book. I'm reading words. It's exciting me. It's, it's touching me. But I'm the reader and here's the book. Or you could be so absorbed in a book you don't even realize you're turning pages. You don't even realize you're reading words. You're so immersed, you become one with it. You could be up all night. So immersed, you become one with something. So that's a very exciting idea. How do you get into the zone? How can you be immersed in something to the point where you become one with it? You become one with it. That's an example. And you can go through any idea, any Maimon Chassidus I just read in Tehidah Shalom. Every word in Chassidus has that type of application. It has the ability to look at it personally. That's how you get excited about it. And when you understand it that way, that awakens different feelings, including a love and an awe, and so on. Much more to be said, but that suffice for now. Let's go to the Chassidus question of the week. Here, dear Rabbi Jacobson, Chassidus talks about here as, as a result of Meisri Meichen. Meisri Meichen literally means the leftovers of Meichen. I'll explain that shortly. Does Chassidus Kabbalah discuss the reason of different hair colors, white hair and baldness? Thank you. So first of all, I've spoken about hair in general in episodes 95 through 97, and 209 about Metzeda in this week's Pashas, actually. Also, there talks a bit about baldness as well. But regarding your question about hair colors, yes, absolutely. There's a maimer, a famous maimer called Sad Haschira. Sad Haschira means the great uh, razor. It refers to a posik in, um, in Yeshaya. We're talking about the Ebershter punishing Sancherev, Melech Ashur. Talked about Ashur. But Yema Hu Yigalech, 
Hashem besad aschile beever nor bemelech asher esareish besad adaglaim vegamas azokun tispa. Translated loosely, it means on that day Hashem shall shave the great razor on the other side of the river on the king of Assyria. That's Ancherev. The head and the hair of the legs and also the beard shall be entirely removed. So Zamaimer from the Alta Rebbe, written by the Mitla Rebbe, and it's printed in Eira Teira Nach, volume 2, page 767, a fascinating Maimer, and Ayin Bey's volume 1, chapter 182, it's the end of the famous Sheftim Tafresh Ayin Gimel, where the Rebbe Rashab elaborates a bit as well on this idea. Basically he says there, there's three levels of hair, but first before we go to three levels, let's talk, what is hair? Physically, hair is like thin strands that come out of different parts of the body. The hair on the head, the hair on the body. The beard grows when you're an adult. So what is hair? Physically, it's coming out. It's also a protector. And it's like a filter. It filters out bacteria and dust and so on. But the human being was created with Salam Alikim. So everything, the physical body, reflects spiritual dimensions. The supernal man also has, just like we have a mind and a heart, and a body, torso and so on, we also, also in Ruchnis is that way. And here is also a level. What is here? It's Just like the hair grows out of the head, so Chassidus explains, here are like thin wires that carry very, very narrow flow of energy from the Meichin. Meichin is very intense. The mind power, mind. Moisrei Meichen is that which they hear. So that's why when you pull a hair, you feel a little pain because the nerve is connected. But when you cut it, you don't feel anything because it's a very minimum form of energy. What is it referring to? As he explains in this mind in very beautiful terms, that when you're trying to bring godliness, which is beyond everything, beyond existence, beyond structure, beyond infinite even, how can this godliness be channeled into a finite structured existence? So we know this was called Simtsumim. The Tzimtzum Adishan conceals the divine. And then there's all the different Tzimtzumim and Seder Shtashos that diminish, diminish to allow the flow. Think of it like a water main. That's infinite amount of water, but how to get to your faucet, it has to go through to get into smaller pipes and smaller pipes until you finally get it accessible to you. Same thing with electricity. These are just examples. How much more so with the infinite divine. So the whole Seder Shtashos is really a network of pipes and channels and vessels that carry the energy, each tailored to its particular level. When you need to make a special leap from a very high level to a lower level, you can't just use a regular pipe. You need to have a very thin strand. That's called situs. That's here. So the origination of here in its source, before it became human, is the ability to carry energy but in a very minimal way. So you have a connection to the source, like, you know, you pull it, but it's so minimal that the recipient can receive it. So essentially the situs reflect that type of tzimtzum. And that mimer explains that there are three levels of tzimtzum, three types of hair. One is white hair that it says in the Posik in Daniel, Zion Tess, which says, Atikim Yosef al the one of ancient years, Atikim, in the level of Atikim, deep divine pleasure, the higher level of Keser, sits on a throne, and the hair on his head is white like wool. So that's white hair. That's the level of Atik and Chesed. It is a Tzimtzum because it's hair, but it's Chesed means the flow is a very positive one. It's a minimal one, but it's Chesed.
The second is black hair from the Posik in um, in Shira Shirim. Where's the Posik? Five eleven. So the Posik says Reshe Kesem Poz Kivsesov Tiltilim Shikhris Kaerev. Which means his head is as the finest gold, his locks are curled, they're black as a raven, black hair. Black hair, he says, that's the hair of Zo, not Atik, Zoid Ampin of the Midas. That's okay, that's already black, because black is already Kavura. It's a more it's a darker energy. So the, the symptom is even deeper. And then there's the third, which is red hair. And that's from the Posting of Shirashim Hei Yudala, 511. The braided locks of your head are like Argomon, as the Al-Tamech Tzaddik explains there, that's, in this case, red. Sometimes it's purple, but there he talks about it as red. Red is Malchus. That's the hair of Malchus. You have the hair of Atik, the hair of which is white hair, the black hair of, of Zomidis, and the Malchus is red hair. Red is also Gvura. He discusses there whether that's a higher, a higher symptom than the dark hair of Za or not. You can look it up. But what does this mean in practical terms? It's referring to Teira. Teira is compared, Halachas are compared also to hair. Like combing hair, where you separate the hairs, it's the clarification, the crystallizing of Halachas to make sure that you get it exactly clear. So it's compared to combing hair, hair. Separate hair strands. And in Halach itself, as the, as the Maimer explains, especially in Ayin Beis, they talk about three different levels of um, Halachas. One is the Halachas in Atik, that he doesn't really explain in detail, that's the Sheda Shateda, Primi Shateda, then there's halachas that distinguish between purity and impurity. That's Zah, that's the hair of Zah that distinguishes between that. That's primis hatera, but the revealed part of primis hatera. And then there's the, the, the revealed part of revealed tera, that's the red hair of Malchus, as he explains in this Mahmoud. So there you have the significance. What the application, of course, is that in, when we think of our own hair, um, we, we are thinking of our hair as being reflections of how it is above, that our hair is teaching us lessons of how we connected the divine energy, a very intense energy, very high levels, as it's channeled to us through these strands. So each one of us, when we're learning Teda, Teda is, of course, beyond everything. And yet the Teda was given to us that even a child can learn because it's channeled to us through hair. So here is the example of the channeling. And our job is to accept that, receive that energy, and then reverse the process, retrace the steps, and broaden the channels so we can connect all the way back to Atik and higher in our process of relating to the divine. Okay, now let's do the three essays. Here we are. Essay number one. This is still essays from 2018. Finding God in the Empty Spaces. Yehudas Fishman, age 75, Boulder, Colorado, self-employed teacher and speaker. Each person is called on Oilam Kotna, a miniature world. As someone whose Jewish life has spanned the 20th and 21st centuries, with all its individual and 
concomitant social challenges, I have struggled to find a sense of meaning and purpose in my Elam Katan, in my small world, and have been guided primarily from that, from above in that endeavor. I would like to write about how Chassidus ideas, Hasidic ideas and teachings have accompanied me through a lifetime of challenges. My aspiration is that the readers will be inspired enough by my life quest for those teachings, for to search for those teachings that can light up their own personal journeys and destinies. She goes on to talk about this um, in a very, very personal way and how Chassidus enriched her life, not just enriched, opened up her whole life, especially the concept of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim coming out of that place. And she talks about it in the context of her own personal life. Very touching essay. My modern from the Rebbe on Essay Eina Allah Harim and different quotations. I found it very moving. And I'm sure you'll find it very well as well. It's hard to sum up because it's not so much an idea. It's more of a life story. But life story through the eyes of Chassidus and how she applies it to her own personal growth and journey. Not a short essay, but it's well worth reading. This essay and all other new essays are posted at MeaningfulLife.com forward slash my life. And you can also receive them in your inbox when you subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Second essay is How to Ride a Roller Coaster. Discussions from the PICU, Mushkin Neparstig, age 22, Brooklyn, New York. Three months ago, I thought I knew how to ride a roller coaster. Now I realize I'm only learning. It's a lesson my almost three-month-old daughter, Shana, in critical condition since birth, has taught me by virtue of being and fighting. Medical staff, family, friends, strangers, and fellow PICU parents alike have joined me on a roller coaster that I now call life. I, I now realize there are many roller coaster riders, riders there are many a roller coaster rider out there from a Hasidic outlook would be of immense benefit as it has been for me. And goes on to go, the difference can be described in three interconnected components. Doing our part spiritually, the difference meaning um, the difference in approach between discussion with the staff and fellow parents here at the PICU. Doing our part spiritually, number two, doing our part physically, it's not all about us, trust is the third. And goes on in a very, very powerful way. Step one, step two, and step three, just through the lens of our personal experiences, makes it far, you know, hits the ball out of the park, basically. Very well done. Thank you for sharing that. Again, a great contribution to the entire Hasidic applications of our times. And finally, essay number three, The Power of a Hasidic Melody. Levi Goldstein, age 40, Postville, Iowa. OU Mashgiach for the state of Iowa. We will address an issue which many people across the wide spectrum face, not having an enthusiasm and enjoyment when engaging in spiritual and godly matters. This issue can be solved with something that is not so known, a Hasidic song. This essay is based on two concepts in Hasidus. One, a song touches the deepest part of one's soul. Two, a song is a tool for one to reach the highest degree of self-nullification to God. And goes on, contemporary issue, about our challenges to enjoy what we're doing, Hasidic sources using a beautiful sikh from Tavshin Gimel, Pesach. About Nigun and song. And goes on to explain it also from Teres Chaim and other beautiful places. Ideas, beautiful ideas of what Hasidic says about Nigun. And then applying it to our personal lives. It's short and sweet, but to the point, with good bullets, another excellent essay, another excellent contribution to the cause and uh, I believe that these will help people really help you, help me, help people all over 
to live their lives in the most meaningful way and most powerful way. So with that, we conclude this week's episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 255. I want to wish everyone a very end of Chedish Adem Marben Besimcha and go immediately from one Gula to the Gula of Nisan. It should be a Gula Dika week and a Gula Dika month. Gula Hamitiz Vashlema, final conclusion of the long marathon that we've all been waiting for. And Arya Gaiti, even a little effort, Ezbuktana, even a small finger, can tip the scale, as the Rebbe says, and we should have the Gula Amitiz Vashlem and be reunited with the Rebbe and with the Rebbe Sanchai Mushke, whose birthday is tonight, Mazoli Gever, and with all the Rabbeim and all the Chassidim and all the souls, all the generations. Everyone be blessed, and until next week, every Sunday, we're at 8 to 9 p.m., a guten Chedish and a guten Tamid.